If you're an entrepreneurial public servant, this podcast is for you. Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders and discuss relevant topics to the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA, and today I am very excited uh, to talk with our new friend, Mark Wainwright. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, BJ. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be here. It's great to have you, and it's great to be talking about one of my favorite topics that makes everybody in the AEC industry uncomfortable, so uncomfortable that they don't call it sales. They call it business development to avoid feeling like they're selling cars. Uh, so I'm, I'm stoked to see where this conversation goes. Uh, for our audience, Mark Wainwright comes to us as an introduction from our great friend, Matt Handel. Uh, Mark and I are actually just meeting for the first time, and we find that some of our podcasts are better when we, when we meet friends of friends. So we have the warm introduction. We know that we're kind of aligned in, in the way we view the world and the way that we're, we're trying to make the world a better place. Uh, but it gets to be a very, uh, very friendly conversation out of the gates, but a very real conversation because we're having it for the first time. So Mark, let's dive in. I think it's important for our audience to hear how you went from a guy in the industry to what I believe is referred to as a fractional or part-time sales manager for the architect engineering construction space. And you correct me on, on any terminology. That's correct. The, the the term is fractional sales management. Uh, there's a number of professionals out in the world that do things fractionally. Um, CFOs, uh, CMOs, you can find folks that offer those services part-time. Uh, and I, you know, like most things, I almost backed into this. Uh, it was a need that I sensed in my time in professional services, which dates way back to about 2000 or so, that practitioners, the experts that are in the field, didn't have sufficient sales skills. And it's a specific thing. And you mentioned it earlier. The industries refer to it as business development or marketing, and they're different things. And But sometimes they just get lumped all together. Uh, maybe it's just the things that all the architects or engineers or practitioners don't want to do, and they just get thrown at the marketing and, and BD folks. But sales is a specific thing. I think there's things that sales people do, things that happen in sales that business developers do not do and that marketing people in firms do not do. So there are some things, there are activities, there are behaviors, there are processes that happen in sales that really don't exist or uh, don't are not practiced at a high enough level inside of many professional services firms in order to really benefit those firms and benefit their clients. Amen. Uh, I'm excited to jump into that. Before we do, how did you find yourself into this industry originally? Why let's, we'll see where we can start on this <laughs> one. Uh, boy, I, I, at some point in my life, I probably swore I was never going to be involved in sales, but lo and behold, my grandfather was in sales. Uh, BJ, we have a common connection in the state of Pennsylvania. I know you've got some connections in the, on the eastern side of things. Um, 
uh, I'm originally from the Pittsburgh area. Uh, my my grandfather sold the lights that they that were installed in the Civic Arena ah. in Pittsburgh, um, and uh, that was a fun. It's a fun story. It's a complex uh, system there. I don't know if you know about the Civic Arena. It's no longer there, unfortunately. They used to call it the Igloo, but it was a domed shaped roof sectioned off into different different pie sections, and they would all retract into one, so it would be an open air. So they had to have a lighting system that could retract up into the roof when it came together. So interesting stuff. My dad was in sales. My dad was a sales rep. He sold all different types of technical technical equipment to steel mills and other industrial plants throughout Pittsburgh and, you know, lived in a car and drove all over the place. And, um, and at some point I swore we'd never be in sales, but lo and behold, here we are. <laughs> so, so I, uh, I am a part-time sales manager to part-time salespeople. And the people I put in that category are architects, engineers, analysts, consultants, wealth managers, financial advisors, planners, urban designers, all those folks that uh, are good at their craft, but less so at sales. Uh, and they need to improve their skills and confidence when it comes to sales in order to, like I said before, benefit themselves, benefit their firms and benefit their clients. So, you know, before we jumped on the show, I, I mentioned the word seller doer, the term seller doer. And I, I believe that that's, you know, everybody you're talking about, um, professionals that are responsible for delivering professional level advisory services, um, legal, architecture, engineering, um, they are, you know, they're, they're spending most of their time doing, we talk about billable hours, right? right? They're, they're making sure they hit their billable hours, but the marketing department alone can't continue to bring in work. So eventually those doers have to learn to, to sell and expand who they deliver their services to. So what do you find is the number one obstacle or hurdle or pain point in, in just transitioning from a doer mindset to a seller doer mindset? I think the number one thing that gets in the way when we're talking about experts in professional services firms is in fact their expertise. Over time, you know, when we're young, we have this great innate sense of curiosity. And we'll touch on this curiosity thing uh, probably later on because it's really important. But I think over time, experts, as they practice their craft, they, they, they go to school, they get their degrees, um, they lose that sense of curiosity and it's, it's um, supplanted by this expertise, right, where they need to have all the answers, and sales really needs a strong sense of curiosity. So what that looks like in practice is if you're, um, if you're a seller doer in a firm and you're in a position uh, where you're meeting maybe a new prospective client for the first time, there's this desire to assert your expertise and to make a series of assumptions about the solutions that you have yet to learn about the problems that exist with your, with your clients, right? So we make all these assumptions, our expertise is for, we end up talking a lot about ourselves as experts. Um, and we don't take a step back, take a deep breath and, and kind of assume this posture of curiosity. 
you know, and dig into the five whys and understand root causes uh, and, and really understand problems and what it means to the particular, you know, prospective clients, you know, what the, what, what they, what they hold most important, et cetera. So we skip over all of that, you know, that deep discovery that you, that you mentioned earlier on, and we just race to uh, assumptions. That's one of the biggest problems. And it is a fundamental deep barrier that exists within every single expert out there that I work with, whether they're a financial advisor or an architect. It's funny. I, I agree. And I, I understand how it comes to be because these individuals are relied on quote for their area of expertise. So they want to represent that expertise and demonstrate it as quickly as possible and establish their credibility when in fact they should be establishing rapport and understanding by asking, you use some discovery techniques, five whys and root causes. Early on in my career, it was described to me as, would you want to go to a doctor, say, hey, my back hurts and they give you Motrin. Not ask any questions about how you hurt your back. Not ask any questions about the area that it hurts. Not ask any questions about when it hurts, why it hurts, how bad it hurts, but just say, take Motrin, right? Which is the army way for anybody listening. You show up <laughs> at the medic, they give you vitamin Motrin. Um, right. The, 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 it's, it's prescription without diagnosis is malpractice, right? There you go. There you go. Right. That's exactly right. Go. So, how how do organizations how do individuals overcome this what are what are the ways that at the individual level and then we'll get into the manager level because you are a, a part-time sales manager for part-time sales people how do, how do individuals you see overcome that i i think it's a fear of some sort uh fear of judgment um fear of being wrong um, and, and reinvigorate that curiosity. I think you're right. The, uh, there, there is that fear. Um, and that's the, that's, that's the cause, right? The, there's a, there's a fear. Like I have to be, I'm the expert. I have to be in the room and I have to have all the answers. Uh, and if I start asking questions, that's going to infer that I don't know my business. Yeah, right. That's right. But the, the, so that, that kind of happens. But the reality is, is that it's critical that you know your client's business. So the only way to get there is to ask questions and you can even prompt it. You can, you can, you can round the sharp edges off of that kind of prickly situation time sometimes and say, look, I can likely solve this problem quickly because I've seen things like it in the past. I've seen the patterns. I've seen some similarities. I can solve this in five minutes. It's likely I'm not going to be able to solve it because your situation is unique from other situations. So I need to know the details. We need to know you and what's happening in your world, in your business. And I'm going to ask you some questions that seem pretty simple. And you might think I don't know my business, but I'll tell you I do. But I have to know you and your situation, your business. And then you can just go. You can start asking your five whys and you can dig into the, the details, and, details and you can ask questions that might seem a little silly, uh, but at the end of the day, really help move the conversation forward. I, I like that. And I'm, I'm, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking it's once the project is won, engineers, architects, they've been engaged. So they've overcome the barrier of the quote, the sale. 
And immediately in a project meeting, they do ask those questions, right? Like I, I think problem solvers and all of these people are problem solvers by nature. Once they've overcome, once the organization has overcome the sale, the, the experts are great problem solvers. It's that, it's that before the sale, before the proposal is submitted, before the, the win, before the sale is made, there's this, there's this hesitancy there's to, to, to be the expert, which any expert asks the questions. So is it, is it more a fear of not getting the sale that, that creeps into their, to their psyche? It's a good point. I, uh, I think that, you know, what you mentioned there, a lot of these firms have a, uh, have a discovery process built into their service delivery steps, right? That's step one, right? Right. Discover. um, So, so what we're looking at here is just the need to shift that forwards, right? Move it forwards in the process, do sufficient discovery during the sale rather than post sale. I think that's, that's right. Um, But yeah, I, I I think that, uh, I think in the sale where there's a little, little desperation, we have to have the right answers. We have to say the right things. Uh, and presenting ourselves as being curious uh, makes us vulnerable, makes them sort of second guess our expertise, you know, and, and I think most of these situations, people kind of come into it like it's a gunfight. Like, all right, so we have to show up with the biggest gun, the most expertise, the best answers, everything else. And, uh, you know, that humility that's required mm, in this sort of information gathering step where we're asking questions and being curious uh, that could be a sign of, uh, could be a sign of weakness, right? That's, uh, we're going to show you our soft underbelly here. Uh, and some people don't want to want to do that, but I'm telling you, it's just, it's, you're going to end up with a better result because you've asked the good questions and you've gotten to some of those root problems and those root causes that others may have just glossed over. And you brought up that it's good for the individual, but it's also good for the client. Should we jump into that? I think clients have a hard time really defining the kind of root cause that like that they have a tough time with that. And they also have, you know, when we get to talking about things like providing options and talking about pricing, because I dig into that as well. You know, I think professional services firms in general have a poor approach to pricing because pricing needs to be a strategy. Uh, and involved in 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 pricing and pricing strategy is the conversation about value. Clients have a very hard time assigning value to certain things, so they don't ha- they don't know how to they don't know how to buy relative to value. They don't know how to assign value to certain things. They don't they aren't able to really dig into these fundamental kind of root causes. So, and 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 I mention this a lot in in the work that I do is that as a good capable skillful salesperson, you have to be the guide. So we have to be walking the buyers through these processes where we're uncovering root causes through good, good questioning. We're presenting options that are connected uh, to, to what they, what they value the most, what they assign the greatest importance and value to. Uh, So, yeah, so that in in the end, what you said there is that all of that benefits the client because they're going to get a better result because they started at the right place. They started at the right, focused on the right root cause, surfacing the right problems, being able to understand what they assign the most value to. So we prioritize those things. 
uh, and getting better results. And typically, a, a lot of this front end work ends up saving a lot of time and energy and resources throughout the process because we're all laser focused on the right things from the get go. So I, I want to jump in and and take you know react to what I say, but I want to I'm I'm hitting our AEC seller doers right now. What what Mark just said was asking questions and being curious helps you helps you help the client, the individual person. That's that's a person. It's a human being. Define their problem better, because what I hear a lot of times is we're not getting any work with agency X, Y, or Z. The contract vehicle, they don't have anything. We don't have any, you know, we don't have any opportunities. And I say, well, who is the person that we're selling to, right? Because big business and procurement departments have tried to convince us that B2B relationships are marketing departments to procurement departments. But at the end of the day, there's a human being out in the field dealing with an engineering problem from an agency. And at the end of the day, there's a human being from my team engineering and solving the problem for that other human being. And processes and and policies have have tried to make the competitive landscape bigger and broader and and more competitive, all in the name of of better you know, resource management, better fairness, whatever. But I'm still convinced that at the end of the day, people are doing business with people. Uh, what's your reaction to that, Mark? I I love it. Uh, I I wrote, and I mentioned the word curiosity before. I wrote a post on my site called "The Loss of Curiosity and Intimacy." It's another word that I use, and I use it in a professional sense, professional intimacy. And I think that connects to what you're saying there is that at the end of the day, we do have these human connections here and, um, you know, kind of the big picture observations that that post that I wrote makes is that, well, we've, we're, we're suffering from a loss of curiosity, which doesn't let us find these root causes, um, doesn't let us ultimately help our clients in the best way we could. And we're losing this professional intimacy, which is this desire as human beings to connect with one another and develop these long-term mutually beneficial relationships. There's a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of processes and policies and things trying to get in between that. But the reality is, is that what that's, that's going to, if we can develop good professional intimate relationships between clients and consultants, between human beings, then we can develop these mutually beneficial long-term relationships that yield, you know, great results for, for both. So, yeah, so I use that word and I use it comfortably. I use the word intimacy comfortably. It's just a closeness. It's a desire to get to know one another. Uh, and um, there's, like you said, there's a, there's a lot of things that try to get in the way of that. Um, but hopefully we can kind of work our way through. So we have processes to help us work our way through. We have managers to help keep us accountable. Help me understand what what you do for firms in your part-time sales management role. Sales managers have two main uh, responsibilities or roles in, in firms. The, the, the first is to create and run an organized sales function within an organization. And the second is to coach and lead sales teams and individual doer sellers, you know, individual part-time salespeople. So 
my role is to come into organizations who may not have a good, rigorous, organized sales function. And the function is the processes and the people all kind of come together to put that in place, whether we're using certain technology tools or, you know, introducing new, new processes, et cetera, how we sell to, to put that in place and make sure that people are practicing it and that we're able to practice it, practice it enough so that we can change it and edit it as we need, but that it's there that we can point to something that says, this is our sales process. This is how we, this is how we sell. Uh, and then I work with different individuals who are inevitably at various levels, some better, some less so, uh, and help improve them and develop them over time. Uh, what most firms find themselves, the situation most firms find themselves in is they have maybe a group of founders. Maybe they were the original entrepreneurs. Maybe they're a second generation that are more skilled at sales and new business development, but they are running a deficit of sales leadership in the organization. So we need to kind of cast a broad net across the organization, present these opportunities for growth and development with sales see who latches on and gets interested and then see who develops and advances, you know, see who's, who's gaining, uh, gaining skills, gaining comfort, gaining confidence uh, so that uh, they can be a future sales leader in the firm. There's a bunch of different functional areas within professional services firms. Sales is one of them, but sales is often the one sort of puzzle piece that individuals are missing when they want to become senior team members, owners, leaders. What are some of the sales training topics that you cover when you, when you come into a, an organization? One of the early ones is, is, you know, the sales conversations. I refer to the sales process as the sales conversations because, um, uh, again, it kind of rounds the edges off of yep. you know, a, a tricky subject. Sales is simply a series of conversations that move from a get to know you to a, um, you know, a, a contract and, and they should happen in a particular order. And, and uh, one is, there are ones that are dependent on others uh, and they generally lead with things like building rapport and creating connections initially, gaining a deep understanding translating that understanding into an approach. Those things go tightly together. Presenting options when you're proposing, options in approaches, op options in pricing, options in scope, um, addressing objections in negotiation, and then closing. So these are different conversations in, in, in every sales process. Selling cannot happen, particularly in professional services where it's complex. Uh, these relationships are long. There's a lot of you know dollars and resources involved. They are conversations. Um, some of the other things are prospecting. Prospecting are, is is proactive outreach uh, that individuals undertake uh, to reach out to you know current and prospective clients about new opportunities. There's a bunch of different ways you can prospect. You know, asking for professional introductions, referrals uh, are one form of of prospecting, which uh, in some industries is in professional services is used a lot. Others much less so. Uh, we talk about pricing, you know, pricing is a big thing and, and, and just, you know, having a pricing strategy, being able to break down pricing and have people understand that it's just not a, you know, a series of listed tasks with one number at the bottom. Uh, you know, as consumers, uh, we want to have 
choices. We want to have options. And when it gets to that point where you're proposing, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 an approach to a particular client, they want to have options and they want to be able to, to roll up their sleeves with you and co-create a good solution that they're comfortable with. Uh, and often that involves uh, various, various options. And there's some very specific ways that you can put forward um, pricing uh, that helps, that helps both. Um, man, there's so much to tackle there first, but Mark, <laughs> yeah. why do I need training to teach me how to have a conversation with somebody that makes it feel like it's not genuine relationship building? Good question. It's a good, it's a good one. I, uh, you know, I think, uh, there are a lot of, here's, here's the, well, the reality with professional services is that there are a lot of people who tend towards that sort of um, um, introversion, you know, that introvert kind of spectrum, right? They're more, there's probably more kind of in the, the ambiverts, right? A little bit of both kind of in the middle. There's probably more of those than we would imagine. But I think there's a lot of people in the industry who are focused on their, their, the practice of their craft. It doesn't necessarily involve a lot of communication and conversation. So they just don't have enough practice. Uh, and they're just not, not, not really good at it. Um, so I, I, I think, and I also think that as experts, they find that one of the first conversations, one of the first conversations they believe they need to have is the expertise conversation mm -hmm. and the expertise conversation happens much later, right? So maybe it's, maybe it's some about, I'm not training them, you know, there's no, we're not handing out scripts. We're not trying to have people, you know, kind of operate like, like robots in these conversations, but some of it has to do, look, this is the, this is the order. This is the appropriate order of your conversations. And it follows a logic, right? The early conversations are gets to know you conversations because inevitably in these high stakes, large complex projects, you're going to be working with these people for a while. So you need to get along. You need to find common points of interest. Uh, you need to, you need to create connections. Uh, you need to get to the point where you know that you have each other's back and that has to happen early because if that happens early and then you introduce your expertise, they will believe you more. If you introduce your expertise before getting to know them, they'll think that you're being boastful, mm -hmm. right? And they won't believe you. So it's just, there's an order there. <clears throat> create rapport, create connection, introduce character, let people know you have their back. And then you int introduce expertise. They believe your expertise more. And Amy Cuddy uh, from Harvard Business School has kind of dug into this. Uh, and there are others. The, the, um, the Speed of Trust is a great book. Mm. Um, that, uh, introduces this concept of, um, um, character and competence and how those two things play against each other. Introducing leading with character lets you introduce your competency second and have it be believable. Introducing your competency first creates greater friction. So they're, they're, they're less likely to, 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 to believe that. So maybe it's less about scripting conversations and it's more about having people understand the purpose of particular conversations and the order at which they should be sort of used throughout this whole sales conversations process. I think it's great. And, and I think it's 
it's also why networking events and uh, conferences are so important because you can get to know people outside of an actual sales opportunity and you're not, you're not creating that, that barrier to relationship building on either side of the conversation, right? Because you're there, you're networking someday. I may be able to help you someday. You may be able to help me and you know, let's, let's see if we get along. Yeah. You have kids. I have kids. You like Philadelphia sports. I like Philadelphia sports, whatever it is. Um, so I, and, and that's why I, you know, not to, not to keep hitting this, but it, it really is personal relationships. Procurement departments may play a, may play a role, uh, in the ultimate decision, but personal relationships go so far. Um, I want to come back to, so that was one question. Um, I have a sales manager question that, that I deal with when managing myself. It's a long sales cycle and I have so much time to follow up with so many people. Um, I talk about personal relationships. I've 100% believe in investing in, in relationships. And just so everybody understands my view on this, I don't think it's disingenuine to invest in relationships that I'm going to do business with. Just like I don't think it's disingenuine to intentionally invest in my marriage or invest my time in my kids. I am choosing to prioritize those relationships. I read books on how to be a better husband. I read books on how to be a better father. I read books on how to be a better, better business person because those relationships are important to me. So I hear a lot when people say that feels so disingenuous to like be strategic about it. It's like, I'm strategic about every relationship. I'm trying to make a better relationship. Um, so it, it takes time. It takes investment. It takes intentionality. That's, that's my view, uh, for what that's worth. Mark, I don't know if you have any, any reactions to that. What it speaks to that other word that I use that, that intimacy, that professional intimacy. Um, it is, uh, it is, if you are intentional, about those types of relationships. What that says, when you say that, what that says to me is that the person on the other end of that relationship can tell very clearly that you are being deliberate and intentional and that you actually care about them, that you're not just checking the checkbox with that relationship, that you're not sending them the email on their birthday because you had it on your calendar, that you really care and it's, 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 you can sense that you can feel that. And that's how I approach relationships as well is that I let people know is like, look, it is important that I stay connected with you because if I'm not, I'm going to experience this sense of loss, right? Mm. We have a great relationship. We've known each other for years. If I lose track of you, that's a problem for me. So I don't, I just don't want that to happen. And whether or not this is going to roll up into something where we're working together or whatever else, that would be great. But I don't want to lose this because this relationship is important to me. And there's a certain, you know, there's a certain transparency that has to happen there that says you are important to me and keeping this relationship going is important. So I think that that has a place in our professional lives. All right. So back to long sales cycle. Easy for me to get distracted because it's a long sales cycle. I think this is the number one thing. Um we're, we as problem solvers, when there's a problem on the table, we're a dog with a bone, we know how to do it. The long sales cycle, especially, and I don't know how much of your work is public, in the public procurement world, um, it's, 
it's easy for a problem that on a Friday feels like it should be solved by COB, the contract takes six months before they actually engage us. How do we mitigate that from an organizational sales management process? Well, you know, I think that uh, you're always wanting to shorten the sales cycle because, you know, you want to lower your cost of sale, right? If, you, if, if, if we can contract this quickly, we can get to work. They can achieve the results that we want. Um, you know, we can, we can, you know, kind of earn the, um, earn the revenue we, we, uh, we need to keep our, uh, keep our doors open and to keep, you know, serving clients. So we want to, we want things to accelerate. We want that to happen. We can't, we don't always have control over that. Uh, I, one of the, one of the best tools that, uh, individuals who sell and teams who sell can bring to that buying selling situation is just simply clarity. I think a lot of uh, the, the challenge with a long sales cycle is that things get unclear. Things aren't, there's a fog. Like, we don't know what we're doing next when, hmm. right? And that is a constant challenge. Even from the first conversation, like, Okay, you had your first conversation. It sounds like you, you know, created a, a, a connection here. There's a, this is the type of a, a, a potential client that you could work with at some point in the future. What is next? Most folks say, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what we didn't really set a next, right? So, so I think that's, and, and that's, that's critical, both when you're in an active buying process and also in other sort of interactions is just providing that level of clarity for both parties about what's next. Uh, many of the practitioners that I work with feel uncomfortable. They feel, oh, setting a next step at the, at the conclusion of our conversation can be uncomfortable. It can sound pushy. It can sound salesy. But, you know, again, this is one of those little, little wordsmithing things that I say to kind of smooth that over a bit. I say, look, you know, just say at the end, you say, look, it would be great if we could figure out what our next step is going to be after this conversation. I know that might sound a little pushy, but I think it's really going to help bring a little more clarity to your life and to my life. And we don't, both of us don't want this sort of spinning around thing in our head like an open loop. It's, you know, David Allen's getting things done. You want to close those loops. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we set next steps and we have a date in our calendar, so, okay, I talked to Bill the other day, I'm going to talk to Bill in three and a half weeks on this particular date at 10 o'clock in the morning, loop is closed, right? So that's one of the things we run into as, you know, doer sellers who are, you know, are spending 75% of their time doing the work, the other 25% other stuff, uh, they're, they're, they lose focus on the four, six opportunities that they're currently involved with. They've got a bunch of open loops. They don't have next steps set. That's a problem. And that's how these long sales cycles and connections just, just there's loose ends everywhere. So the way we tighten all that up is being very clear, bringing clarity, clearing the fog of these buying, selling situations uh, by setting, being explicit, being deliberate and setting clear next steps on it. I hope that, I hope that answered at least I, part of it, it. It absolutely did. I love that. And I, I think you know, one of the things that we're trying to figure out, and, and maybe you have some ideas on this, is you know, Salesforce is the the Cadillac CRM, but there doesn't ever seem to be the right CRM for our company. Um, right at the end of the day, CRM is just enterprise wide. 
software that's reminding you what opportunities are, what the next actions are, and who's responsible and who knows that customer, right? Yeah, CRM systems are 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 challenging. It's um, you know, it's 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 interesting. Um, the vast majority of those technology tools out there, the vast majority of CRM systems are built for the vast majority of buyers. And the vast majority of buyers of CRM systems are companies that are selling SaaS products, that are selling CRM systems. Like yeah. Salesforce <laughs> is built for, for selling Salesforce, <laughs> right? That's And you're thinking, well, that sounds crazy, Mark. Well, it's, ab- it's absolutely logical. Like what, you know, we're going to build the perfect tool to sell us. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of what these companies do. And, you know, if you're selling SaaS products, I think that when just about any of the CRM systems are going to work okay. But professional services firms are just not built that way. Uh, you know, with, where they have, you know, sales cycles for a SaaS product is, you know, 15 days, 30 days. You know, a sales cycle for a complex sale can be 180 days, can be 200 days, you know, like it can be longer. It, it's, and it's very, very complex and there's tons of stakeholders and there's things happening that are very different from a, there's no demo, you know, there's right. So it's, it's a different beast uh, than that. And, and the reality is almost none of the CRM systems off the shelf do a very good job of, of what, what is kind of kind of emerging and called PRM, which is personal relationship management. Mm. You know, they don't do a very good job of connecting individuals with individuals and reminding, you know, giving us these nice gentle nudges of, hey, it's been six months since you've been in touch with so-and-so. You know, hey, it's been three months. You know, I'm your little reminder system. You told me to remind you it's been three months. Here's your reminder. Yeah. Very few do that. Uh, And that's a critical component, particularly when we have so many relationships we're we're managing and working with and so few opportunities because the opportunities are low in number high in dollar high stakes high complex that's just the nature of professional services you have a ton of contacts but you have very few opportunities that's just the nature of it uh, so crm systems are not necessarily built like that crm systems are typically built for buyers you know you have tons of buyers in there they're moving through your pipeline you've got 500 people at this stage you've got 100 people at this stage you're cranking out the widgets at the other end so crm systems are are a challenge and um there's a there's a few out there that try to angle a little bit more towards professional services but uh most of them fall short you know and a lot of clients talk to me about what crm system should i get and um I don't really get to the CRM conversation with folks until I've really come to understand what their needs are and what their business processes are, because a CRM system has to bend to your business process, not the other way around. Right. All right. I I like that. Our CRM system at MCFA is an Excel spreadsheet. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I have, I have built, and I have multiple clients who will attest this. I have built a, you know, and I'm no coder, but I've, you know, baked in some pretty interesting JavaScript into this Google sheet that I made multiple clients use it and they love it because it does these few simple little things like give them reminders. Yeah. You know, here's so-and-so here's what I, here's, this was my next step with this particular opportunity. It's going to send me a little reminder. Oh, close date has come and gone for this opportunity. Go back and update it. Right. Like that. It just, constantly pings people with little reminders and it lets us do reporting. And so it's, you know, I'm, yeah, it's uh, it lets it, it's stripped down to just the bare functions and I, and I really like it. 
right. I, I could talk about a lot of this all day long. Uh, we're 40 <laughs> minutes in and we want to respect our audience's commute. I want to hit yeah. on pricing and value pricing real quick. Yeah, right. uh, your snippet on that and then we'll get to some rapid fire questions. Great. Uh, talk to me. When you say we want a la carte options as human beings, how do we do that when the client asked for a hard bid? Right. I will. Uh, I always think that options are important, even if they're like, okay, so we want one number. And I go, okay, so that's not how we work. We're going to give you, we're just going to give you some options. You can disregard everything else that we've put forward, but we're going to give you some options because, you know, we don't want this to be a, just a, just a, a convergent process where we're just trying to find the perfect solution. We'll get there, but we're not there at that point. Right. Uh, and, and it's funny, I, I, I talk about, you know, SaaS companies and how they're selling Salesforce. And whenever you go to buy Salesforce, you've got your good, better, best situation. You've got your personal version, your, you know, your enterprise version, your, you know, call us for a custom pricing version. They have all that tiered pricing versions yeah. that should find its home into your proposals. And the reason is, is that it's very buyer centric. It helps you buy, you know. How it is extraordinarily difficult from a buyer standpoint to dig through the 14 pages of, you know, or 40 pages or whatever you've put together in your fee proposal, task one, task one, one, task three, task 12, you know, and all the various prices you have. Some of those have ranges, you know, other things like that. So it is very, very hard to, to navigate that. So being able to summarize your pricing in a single table that provides options. Maybe it's a good, better, best way of approaching it. Maybe it's, uh, um, here's an initial option that maybe just gets us all to the table and uh, gets us into a, a sort of a, a discovery step. Maybe the scoping is so nebulous on this that we can't get our heads wrapped around it. Nobody can figure it out. Everybody else is throwing, you know, these big dollar figures at you to try to, you know, get started. Why don't we just do this simple little thing where we can sit down, scope the project out, and this is what it's going to cost. Here's option two. Option two said, you gave us a ballpark of what your budget was. Here's the work that we think we can do for that. Hmm. We're going to leave. There's a little bit extra that we don't think we can get to, or we have to handle a different way, but here's your budget. And here's the work that we think will fit with that. Here's a third option where we said, okay, no holds barred. We're going to throw the kitchen sink at this and we think we're going to be able to achieve your outcomes and then some with this third option. There's your three options, right? Let's talk about that. And they say, oh, this is interesting, right? The great thing about providing options and proposals that is that it demands a conversation. It says, oh, great. You gave us three options. It's like, yeah, let's talk about them. I and love We it. just wanted one. It's like, well, that's not what we do. We do options because we want to present you with... We want to show you show our thought process here. We're not going to give you one number. Um, and I know in certain circumstances, that's just not going to work. But I think in more circumstances than not, it can work. I think you can present some options to give choice. And and for everybody that's putting proposals together out there, that, that leads to more curiosity. It demonstrates curiosity and it demonstrates expertise that you've thought about their problem in a number of different ways and that you're willing to demonstrate to them value. Um, I, I really enjoy that. And, and we, I think we attempt to do it inside of our company. Um, it, it really should be a, a hard checklist part of 
every uh, every major pursuit we go after. Right. Uh, I'm going to go to just some quick questions. We won't hit them all because, again, I want to respect the commuter. Uh, maybe six minutes or less. Favorite quote? Favorite quote. All right. This one's kind of a paraphrase. We cannot assume a piece of paper can do the work of a conversation. Oh, <laughs> who is that by? Cause I, I really enjoy that one. Yeah. That's a, that's a, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a great guy named Blair ends. Uh, he wrote a book called um, the win without pitching manifesto and his, his audience is largely creative agencies, but so much of what he does bleeds into the larger world of professional services. He's a great guy. He's got a fabulous po- podcast out there with a guy named David C. Baker. They're what's sharp the, stuff. It's, what's their podcast it's called? called? It's called uh, Two Bobs. Two Bobs. From, two Bobs from Office Space. It's really funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's brilliant stuff. I'm, I'm certain once your audience you know, makes that mental jump from he just talks about creative agencies to some of his wisdom can apply to my work, it's gold. That's great. Uh, speaking of books... Most gifted book or favorite book? Sales or not? Well, yeah, the one I just mentioned is a great one. The Win Without Pitching Manifesto is a good one. I do give that to some of my clients who aren't familiar with it. I've uh, got a couple others. Cracking the Sales Management Code with Jason Jordan is a fabulous sales management book. Uh, and I worked for six years with Dr. John Cotter from Harvard Business School. So his book, Leading Change, is a seminal book for anyone who wants to think about and um, kind of consider what it means uh, for large organizations to transform. And for our listeners, we'll put all of these in the show notes so that yeah. you can click and buy because that's what Jeff Bezos does. Makes it easy yeah. for you to spend money. Exactly. Um, three people you would like to, dead or alive, that you would like to spend time with. It's a, that's a great question. Um, Robin Williams. I felt I felt a powerful sense of loss when I learned that he had passed, um, and I had this probably little thing in my mind: is like, gosh, if I just could have had a conversation with Robin Williams, I we could have kept him alive a little longer. Um, my uh, my father in law Roger, uh, who passed uh, too soon, he's a great guy, um, and maybe just hanging out with the Dalai Lama. I think he's still alive, and he's just gosh, wow, just learn a lot from that guy. I think he is. Uh, because you brought it up, I want to hit it. Uh, I hit it every now and then. My uh, Last week, we aired, uh, and I don't know when this one's going to air, but within the last month, because uh, it, it aired last week, it's uh, St. Patty's Day today. Mm. Um, I had a, the fourth classmate of mine from West Point uh, passed away due to suicide. Um, so I hit mental health a lot here. Um, but really everybody listening, if, if one normalize this conversation and two reach out and, you know, we're talking about relationships, uh, that's why relationships matter <laughs> because people help people. So I just want to hit that, uh, you know, Robin Williams, what a loss to, to the world. Uh, and, agreed. And, uh, our veteran community is just struggling with, the suicide epidemic right now. Um, last question. Uh, if you could leave anything with our listeners, the floor is yours. What would it be? 
I'm going to double down on what we talked about initially is that whole curiosity thing. Like I want people to, to embrace that. I would love for anybody who has an important conversation coming up. Maybe it's a, the first one, maybe it's a, a subsequent conversation uh, with maybe an existing client or a prospective client is just be curious, take your expertise and just put it to the side for a moment. And just be curious. Yeah. Mark Wainwright, everybody's going to be asking, why did you just share all this expertise for us to go out and win more work and, and compete with you, BJ? And uh, the answer is because I think Mark can help all of us. I think to Mark's point, if, if we are better at having these conversations, we are doing our clients. And in most cases, that's public servants. We're doing them a favor, helping them better define problems. Uh, to get better solutions. And guess what? We're all investors in public projects because we're all taxpayers. So that's why we want to do this. We want you to be better salespeople. We can't help everybody, uh, but those listening, you can go help your clients by being a little more curious. Mark, thank you so much for your time. And we'll be sure to connect people. Uh, if you want to get in touch with Mark, we'll make sure uh, you can connect with him on LinkedIn or email uh, because we all may need a part-time sales manager for our part-time salespeople. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, BJ. If you're enjoying the show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other curious entrepreneurial public servants. Be sure to check out our website, www.mcfaglobal.com to find out more about MCFA, uh, what our team does and how we might be able to help you, partner with you, uh, and go sell with you because we do sell. Uh, until next time, everybody have a great week. Have a great weekend. Happy St. Patty's Day. Be late it. <laughs>